innovative, often duplicated When enough people get on the trend, I elevate it Make it way harder for them to follow what I take It hard to swallow like a lozenger lodged in your trachea Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up So just take your stuff, rake it up and take the bus Never fake the funk, you painted skunks You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space So the weight is up Fight! WHUPLP Hillsboro, North Carolina, the center of the known world. This is the Cage Side Concussion Cast, and I'm Jeff Shaw. Broadcasting from Hillsboro, we had to get Jason Colbreth on the show. Jason's a guy that everybody's been after me to have on for quite some time, and we've always been very excited to do so. And when better than to have him on the week after he became the first North Carolina homegrown black belt to win the Black Belt World Championship at the Masters Worlds in Las Vegas, Nevada. Jason has also coached more quality competitors than you can count, was there at the founding of Team Rock, and is very knowledgeable about the history of jiu-jitsu and MMA in North Carolina. By the way, he was also instrumental in getting MMA legalized in this state. All told, as a competitor, a teacher, an instructor, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who's influenced the North Carolina martial arts scene more than Jason Culbreth, and that's why so many people wanted to hear from him. So we're going to get right to the interview, but first I need to tell you how to get a hold of us. Let us know what you thought on Twitter and Instagram at CagesideWHUP. You can email the show at CagesideWhoop at gmail.com. You can always leave us a comment on our Facebook page at Cageside Radio. Please go to iTunes and Stitcher and subscribe, and if you like us, leave a review. One final note before we get to Jason Culbreth. We will be at Toro Cup next week, September 10th, at Triangle Jiu-Jitsu in Cageside Fight Company, 124 Ladder Road, Durham, North Carolina. Half the proceeds go to support the Terra Ray Kids Project. There will be 16 great matches, and we're going to be interviewing every one of the victors. So listen to the show September 11th for a full recap, Toro Cup, featuring Daniel Frank, black belt from Revolution BJJ in Richmond, Virginia, who will recap his match as well as all the other matches. So check that out September 10th. But for now, enjoy our interview with Jason Culberth. So we're sitting here with Jason Colbreth, uh, black belt under Hoist Gracie, uh, longtime instructor, pivotal figure really in the development of the North Carolina jiu-jitsu and mixed martial arts scene, and recent black belt world champion, having won the Masters Worlds, a gold medal in his weight class, uh, who we believe to be the first homegrown uh, North Carolina black belt uh, to achieve such an accomplishment. And Jason, welcome. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me up here today. So let's start maybe by talking about your trip out to the Worlds. You went out there with a team of folks from North Carolina, a whole bunch of them won medals. And so we're going to get into your matches in just a second, your matches at the Black Belt Worlds. Uh, but perhaps you could talk a little bit about uh, your success as a team and some of the some of the performances that from your school at Forged Carry and some of your other friends uh, achieved with uh, you there instructing them. Sure. So we went out there, took myself, Mary Holmes, Gita Bot, my brother, Drew, uh, all came from Forge Fitness Carry, and then we, we had uh, met up with Jen Ho Kim out there, and we met up with Ned Bird, Tim Hufford from Chapel Hill, and uh, you know had a good day overall. Our team did exceedingly well, super proud of what everybody did. Uh, my brother got two golds, gold in his weight class, gold in the absolute as well. Uh, Gita got gold in her weight class and got silver in the absolute, and then, of course, Mary got silver in her class, and then she got gold in the absolute. She finally... Uh, hit that switch when she got to the absolute and just really did her thing. Um, 
And so, you know, all four of us did really, really, really well. Super proud. Ned got two um, bronze medals and then Jin Ho got a bronze medal as well. So a uh, good day overall. I think Tim made it to quarterfinal round, semifinal round, something like that. Uh, he did really well. And then, of course, Lee King came up from Sand Hills Jiu-Jitsu with Roy and um, had a good match. But, man, he got that guy that you just don't really want to get in the first round. You know, the guy was just a monster and uh you always want that first round to be kind of a warm-up where you get everything going. And, you know, when you're in a competition like that, you don't really get that luxury. You've got to do your thing right away. So tough break for Lee, but uh, great performance overall by everybody. Yeah, you have to be pleased not only with uh, North Carolina as a whole, but certainly with your specific uh, group of students. I want to talk about you as, as a competitor first, though. And we'll get into your the origins of your jiu-jitsu later on in the show. But a two-part question. What does winning the Black Belt Worlds mean to you personally? And was this a goal that you set when you started jujitsu, or was it not even on your radar screen at the time? The truth is, I mean, everybody would love to win a you know world championship. That's a that's a big deal. At first, uh, when I won, it was like I just won another tournament. I was super pumped, but it was more because I was able to succeed in front of a lot of my friends. I had people from all over the country there. Um, you know, a friend of mine, Jeff Wong, that everybody knows from Hawaii, he was in, uh, and, and you know, it was really cool to look up after the matches and see just. A ton of people, you know, cheering and rooting for you from everywhere. These people that you've either had a played a role in their success or in their training or just become friends with over the last twenty some years. That was really, really cool. But honestly, it wasn't on my radar. Um, it was one of those things. I've never had a tournament where I could go out and be healthy uh, and and be healthy up till the tournament came. Usually I'm injured, but I go compete anyway, and I don't really hide behind the injuries. I don't believe in that uh, excuse making, right? Uh, if you go out there and you walk onto the mat, you accept the circumstances that surround it, good, bad, or otherwise. And so I hate to see people say, I would have won if. No, you wouldn't have won. Because if you would have won, then you should have won, but you didn't. And so be quiet about it. And uh, so, um, you know, it, I was super, super, super happy. It was a really tough group. I think I had 14 in my division, something like that. Um, I don't really pay attention to the brackets because they don't mean anything. It, what matters is the person that you're going in front of. So super thrilled, really, honestly. The longer I get away from it, um, the more excited I really get about the medal and what it really means. It was super gratifying, even for those of us watching on the live stream, because as you say, you had a bunch of your friends there. And that was evident as as soon as you won that final match where you caught the guy with what I believe was a loop choke. That's correct. About five or six people just leapt to their feet and were cheering and you could tell how excited you were. And that was just just a terrific moment. And let's talk about that last match, your finals match for a second, because I believe that was the only match where you trailed on points. And I'm, I would like you to walk us through that match. What was going through your mind in terms of strategic thought? Did, did you, did you have a game plan going in? You know, talk us through that, that final match where you were, you, you, that you won for the gold medal. So I really can't do that. And here's why the final match is actually a culmination of what happened early in the day. So, uh, going out there, my ribs were a little bit tender, no big deal, just some tough rolling one of the nights before we left. First match came, great match, um, super, super tough guy to Sean Williams school out there. And if you know Sean, you know he's got phenomenal athletes. Uh, and so that match was great. Got into my second match, about a minute and 45, two minutes into my second match, I tear my rib cartilage about as bad as I've ever tore in my career. And I've tore it quite a few times. It was like one of those long zipper tears. And so when it tore, I could, you know, I feel it tearing. I'm like, oh, here it goes. Like, this is going to be my coulda, shoulda, woulda been day, right? And so 
I was real upset about it, but I'm I'm trying to scrap my way through the match, still trying to perform. I feel like I can win the match. It just hurts, and it hurts bad. It's like getting poked in the rib with a fork. So that happens. I win the match, 19 nothing. Um, and like I said, I wasn't trying to – well, I was trying to stall out. Every chance I could get, I was hoping he would put me in like half guard and just lay there. And the guy just kept working. And the more he worked, the more I had to work uh, to stay. And so I kept scoring. Um, and then so I get into my third match. Uh, and I had – it's a lot of self-talk to even get into the match, right? Because I'm hurt. And I'm hurt bad. And I know it. I can feel my ribs sliding. They feel like an accordion going in and out. And, and it's, like I said, it's probably the worst rib injury I've ever sustained. So I get into that match. I get my takedown. Um, and, you know, the guy's able to sweep me because he goes for a sweep and I just can't fight it. My rib just gives up. I basically fall down. And uh, so he gets on top. And, and the guy is a real tough guy out of Ohio. I think he um, trains with Dustin Ware up there. And, uh, it, and the guy had a real patient guard passing game, and he was very active, but very calculatedly active. Like he didn't, he didn't give you a lot of opportunities. He was, he would make you make the mistake. Very, very good strategy for him. So I thought, man, I'm not going to let this guy play this game on me. I've got to make something happen. I look at the clock. There's about 30 seconds left. Uh, I've got to go for something. I open up, give him a chance to pass, go for the loop choke. Uh, almost get it. Time runs out. The the referee gives me an advantage for a good job. So the uh, I win that match and then I get the finals. So that kind of gives you the mindset going into the finals. I'm like, man, this is bad. Like my ribs are bad. Every match it's worse. And I know that the longer I'm at it, the more it's gonna it's going to take to recover. Right. So I know my recovery time is going to be longer every single match that I have, and the more damage that I do to the ribs. But you know, so I'm I'm over there hurting, and, and and you know, psychologically you have a lot of things going on in your head. And, you know, I want to quit. Like I just want to go out there, bow the guy, shake his hand, and walk away. And I think, man, you didn't train this hard and and do all the things and cut the weight and you know not, not, and get ready for this to walk away because you hurt. Yes, it's a lot of pain, but you're not going to die from it. You're not going to be permanently disfigured from it. At least I hope not. But the um, and so. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, man, this is really tough. So my brother's texting me while I'm waiting and I keep getting these texts back and forth, you know, suck it up, you know, it's five minutes, like get over it, quit acting like that. You know, you're going to do this thing. And we go back and forth. I'm like, I got this. And he's like, no, you know, every time he would see me wince, I'd turn, I'd grab my ribs. He'd like, stop, you know? So I get into the match with the guy. We know the guy's going to pull guard. The guy goes pull guard. I go to pass. Um, he scrambles, tries to come up. I go for a throw and you can't throw, you don't have ribs, it hurts. The guy basically flings me to the ground like a ragdoll. And uh, so I thought, well, there's my day. And uh, I did a guard recovery on the guy. And the guy was being, um, in these matches, especially the black belt division, the guys are real rough. The guy knew my ribs were hurt, so the guy was shoving on my ribs. So I don't blame him. I mean, I would have done the same thing, right? This is a jiu-jitsu match. So, you know, you win however, it's legal. You know, guy's got an injury, you play to it. So um, I open up a little bit. You know, and the guy is super jacked. I mean, he was super jacked. So I like, but, they, but, you know, I got a good training partner, so I wasn't worried about that. And then um, I gave him an opportunity to pass and he got real greedy and saw it. And he ducked his head and dove in and I hit my loop choke and I started getting excited. And then he backed out and I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. Now I'm going to be stuck here. Well, he got really excited and he jumped back in for it and I hit it with everything I had. I thought I got one in me. And whatever happens here is going to happen. And so I kept that loop choke and he was actually spun so hard. I was actually on my knees underneath him with the choke. 
And so I was trying to hold him in place. He's trying to get out. So I dump him over and get the finish. And it's super, super, super pumped to have gone through all that and still get the win. So you are one of the only people that's qualified to answer this question. So I'm going to ask it to you. Would you rather win a world championship yourself or coach one of your students to a world championship? If you can only pick one, what do you pick? Oh, I'm always going to pick my students. And, you know, I tell people all the time, don't judge me by my performance in tournaments or events like that. Judge me by how my students do. So... You know, they all got gold, and I was gratified whether I did anything or not. If I didn't make it out of the first round, I still went out. I challenged myself. I stepped up to the plate. But, you know, again, I felt like my training was on time. I thought the things that we've been doing and some of the changes we've made in how we tra- train over this last year were significant. And uh, it just got real interesting. But uh, any day, if you're going to give me whether I can win or my students can win, I'm going to go with my students every day. So these are just your most recent achievements, both as a, as a coach and an instructor and, and as a competitor. Let's go back to the earliest days. I'm wondering what got you to first want to train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? What got you interested and how did that come to be? Okay, so that's another long story. <laughs> so a friend of mine, his cousin, was actually talking to us about it one day. His, uh, it's a guy named um, Mike Schuler. Uh, lives in Salisbury and his cousin, a guy named Kevin Honeycutt, they had been training for a while. Uh, and I guess they had gotten to know Hickson, were training under Hickson at the time. And so th- they knew I'd wrestled and started telling me all about it. And I was super excited about this whole thing. So I thought, well, that's pretty cool. You know, I heard about it. You know, I'd seen Hoist fight. I'd read some of the, the magazine articles on him. And uh, I was like, wow, that's that's really cool. But I don't know, have a clue where to do this at, you know. Um, and they were training basically with videotapes at the time. So I uh, had gone to Fayetteville to hang out with a friend of mine and uh, went down there. We had dinner, spent the night, and we were talking about jiu-jitsu. And he's like, oh, I got some friends that teach this uh, at Fort Bragg. So we went on base and we trained. It was awesome. I broke my big toe first day because they have the uh, Velcro mats and they were spaced too far apart. Still had a blast. Came back. I was telling one of my friends about it. And he said, well, you know, why do you want to get videos? Greg Thompson and Anderson Dickey teach it right next door. And it was up here in Hillsborough at Body Works uh, that Tom Garner owns. And so he said, why don't you go over there and check it out? Well, I'd known Greg. We'd grown up together, taking Taekwondo together and gone to high school together and then my whole life. And then Anderson, I'd actually babysat him when he was a kid. So uh, I've known him forever and went over there, started training with those guys. Uh, it was Scott Wood, Ryan Wood, Todd Wood, uh, this real tall guy named Scott, another guy named Artie. And, uh, I think in Rex Frederick, really tough guys. I mean, these guys were super strong. Today, we would refer to them as head squeezers. Back then, they're just tough. So I started training with those guys and getting beat up every day and loved it. And so been doing it ever since. So how did the whole Team Rock thing start? Like, I know that, uh, you know, because Greg was obviously in- instrumental to that. But I'm wondering, how did you get brought in and when did when did, uh, when did you get involved with Team Rock? So Team Rock is actually a culmination of Greg Thompson and Brent Pierce uh, out of Team Rock Eden. And they, uh, Brent had come down to train. Uh, he had gone on a cruise, a Gracie cruise or something like that. And, of course, Hoist knew who we were. And so he said, well, if you're in North Carolina, you should go train with Greg and those guys. They came down. Brent had a tremendous um, uh, experience as a police officer. He's a retired police officer from California in the San Jose area. And uh, his background was like Kali and, and tie boxing and things like that. So they got together and created Team Rock. We wanted to have some unison between what they were doing there in, in Eden and what we were doing here in Hillsboro and kind of have an outlet to go back and forth. So being one of Greg's students, 
I've been Team Rock since since that day, really. And uh, it's been something that's been a huge part of my life. And I've always flown that flag, uh, you know, even throughout all the schools that I've done. Uh, and just because it's super special because of what it was and the type of people that created that that group and those people. So uh, it's been uh, it's been a journey with those guys. So Team Rock has produced a bunch of legendary fighters, a bunch of legendary jiu-jitsu practitioners. I have a two-part question about those early days. You can define early days however you like. Who was the toughest guy you trained with during those early days? And who do you think was the most underrated guy? And it could be just a guy that was super tough, super good, that maybe folks don't know about as much, doesn't get as much credit as, as he or she deserves. Well, again, like I said, I had two coaches. I had Greg and I had Anderson. And and ability-wise, Greg always performed. Everybody knew who Greg was um, just because he's a stunningly handsome man. I mean, he's very, very pretty. But uh, – so everybody knows that. They know Greg, and he's got a great personality. But Anderson was actually the one that spent most of his time coaching me uh, because Greg would show up a couple days a week, and then Anderson would be there every day and train as long as I wanted to. Uh, I still believe that this kid today is probably the biggest missed opportunity in all the jiu-jitsu world. I mean, even back in the day when a purple belt was something you know auspicious, uh, and it still is, but he would he would have been a purple belt long before everybody else. He wasn't as physically gifted as Greg is, but technically he was amazing. Uh, but what happens to a lot of athletes that could have, should have, would have been, and they get involved with girls and you know other distractions in life, and they don't stay focused. He had an injury, didn't want to get the surgery, that sidelined him for a while. Then he got back into it, and then he got thrown off a horse, and his back got messed up. Um, but he still does some every now and then, and I tell people all the time he's still formidable. And even though he hasn't done it in a long time, uh, and even Ryan Wood, one of the guys that trains with us, still has a little club here in Hillsboro, and they uh, some tough guys, man. You you can't count out these guys from small town of Hillsboro because I know because that's where we came from, and everybody counted us out when we went everywhere, and uh, we won everything. And so, uh, you know, you you be careful who, who you know how you judge people by where they train. When was the ter- first time you met Hoist Gracie, and what are some of your earliest memories of training with Hoist? Man, the first time I met him. That's a good question. Uh, I don't know if it was when he came in for a seminar or when we went to Richmond for a seminar. But he used to pick on us all the time because everybody was so strong. So he would you know, tell the everybody at the uh, that's attending the seminars, okay, guys, everybody else, this is your technique. You guys from Hillsborough, I'll come show you a technique in a minute. Uh, so, and he would demonstrate the technique, and we would all be waiting for him to come show us something. And then he would walk over and say, okay, all you guys from Hillsborough, go push the bus around the parking lot, and uh, that'll be your technique for the day. And he used to really pick on us about that. But um, so a great story with him is that night we all went to dinner. It's a huge group of us. We go to dinner. We go to some Italian restaurant. And uh, when we're leaving, I can't remember. It might have been Joe Gray or it might have been this other guy named Rick. And I can't remember Rick's last name. But they had a, a saline Mustang at the time. And they made the mistake of letting Hoist drive. Well, Hoist gets in this car and he just barrels it through town. I mean, he is flying. And so he's zipping through all the cars and, and driving like crazy and get to the parking lot. And he gets out and he's just crying, laughing. He's laughing so hard. And uh, we're like, what's so funny? He's like, this guy over here, he screams like a girl. <laughs> so <laughs> so that was, that was a, a great introduction and actually spending an evening with him and really kind of getting to know him and, and realize what a character he really is. 
you've obviously gotten to know and train with Hoyce over many years. I'm wondering if you have similar memories of Rodrigo Gracie, who is, uh, you know, uh, who I think not as not as many people know about as as they should, given how skilled and accomplished he is. Yeah, so we started training. Well, Rodrigo used to be up at Henzo's place. So the first time I ever met him was up at Henzo's training um, because we were friends with Hikara Almeida. And uh, he used to come down all the time and do some classes here, do seminars here. And so I'd gone up to New York and I'd met Rodrigo up there. Um, and then you know, Rodrigo's first seminar was great. Uh, because only like seven people showed up. Nobody knew who he was. Back then, everybody, you know, didn't have access to the information the way we have it today because the internet was fairly new. And it was it was an amazing seminar. The guy is super tough. In the intensity, you know, we always talk about the um, first generation guys from every major instructor being just ridiculously tough. If you look at the house, first generation guys, Henzo's first generation guys, Hoist's first generation guys, everybody's just crazy tough. Uh, and, and you can see it with the, with like Charles Gracie and those guys and the Diaz brothers and Jake Shields and all these people that we still talk about today. And so, you know, he was just a monster. I mean, he was so physical, so aggressive. He was actively competing at the time. Uh, you know, training with him was brutal. You wondered if you were going to get hurt because he would hit things so fast and so hard that it would really freak you out a little bit. But uh, overall, just a super duper guy. And again, the more you get to know him, you find out there's much of a character and he's all into cartoons and Star Wars and all this kind of stuff. So in addition to some of the toughest people you trained with, I'm wondering about your toughest days of training because, you know, I certainly have some memories that I look back on and I say, oh, that was a rough day. But among the old school guys, you know, I get the impression that y'all trained super hard. Well, there are a lot of those days. I mean, I guess the the every day was really tough. You know, when you would come in, depending on who showed up, there may be two of you on the mat. There may be 10 of you on the mat. And you would roll. There were no round timers. There was nobody keeping time. You roll with the guy that you were with until you two guys got tired of rolling. And you might wind up getting tapped 100 times in that, you know, in that round or you might have one of these megathon rolls that just went on and on and on. So you're either the fodder or you're having these great rolls. Um, but probably one of the most intense nights um, was when I was fighting, when I was doing MMA. We were training. We had moved from the location here in Hillsboro over to off Highway 70 to this little, used to be like a consignment shop or whatever. And uh it, the, the, we trained so hard that day and getting ready for the fight. I think there were three of us fighting out of there at the time uh, that the walls were actually sweating with water. The moisture, the mat was completely soaked. Um, you're exhausted laying on the mat. You know, it's one of those things that you're so tired. Like you really are physically tired. You don't really, you almost lose your memory. You're that tired. Um, you know, I just remember going out and sitting in my car for 20 minutes trying to figure out, you know, can I even make the drive home? You know, and I was living in Cary at the time. It's like, can I make that drive? And if I can make the drive, where am I supposed to go? Uh, but that was probably one of the toughest days of training ever because it's just round after round after round uh, of guys getting on you. But that's the way it was. You know, it, it, again, people forget if you're old school, uh, you're tough. You might not be the best, but you're going to be tough. Did you ever have, have anybody come in and, and try to train and just think they could hack it and just – after a while, just shake their head at y'all and say, you guys are crazy. I'm leaving. That happened more more times than we can count. Um, but actually, the more notable is the people that came and trained 
so you hear the stories that, you know, Mark was on your podcast and I would love to have dinner with that guy and, and talk old school stories. If you listen to his podcast or if you go over to Dave's uh, Camarillo's podcast and Position Impossible, listen to the Garth Taylor interview. So those exact same things were happening here. You know, you have a little group of people that are training in another town. They're doing jujitsu. They think they're great. They come over. So here's a good story for you. One night we're training and these guys come in from from Mebane up the street. They come in Mebane Graham area. And they all roll up in there, and they're two, two rather large semi-pro football players. Uh, there's a fat redneck with a mullet and a mustache, uh, and his name is Spencer Knup. And uh, <laughs> there was Jim Fairchild, and I don't know if Crazy Ray was there the first night or not, um, but there were about seven or eight of those guys that came over. And uh, so my coach Anderson says, hey, you know, go roll with that guy. And I'm rolling with this massive semi-pro football player. I don't want to roll with this guy. He's I'm 170 pounds at the time, and and he's probably 210, and I don't think there was any fat on the guy. He was huge and very intimidating. And uh, so he said, roll with that guy. So I rolled with the guy and arm bar the guy. So got a big smile on my face, went and sat back down, uh, figured my day's done, right? I represented. Everything's great. Well, he didn't like that. So he rolls with a few more people, decides he wants to roll with me again. Anderson's like, go roll with him. I'm like, no, man, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm hanging out right here. I'm, I'm good. I don't need to roll with that guy again. And he's like, no, go ahead and roll. I'm like, uh, maybe not. So I go ahead and roll with him again. I armbar him again. Well, he jumps up off the mat, flings off his gi top. He's like, I don't do this gi stuff. I'm only no gi. He's like, let's just go no gi. And I said, well, can I keep my gi on? Because I don't know anything about no gi. And uh, he's like, I don't care what you do. So I armbarred him again. So after that, uh, Spencer signed up, uh, Jim signed up, Crazy Ray signed up, everybody from Graham came over except for the two semi-pro guys who got beat by the little guys. They're the only ones that didn't come in and sign up. I, I think they thought they were better than they were, and when they got shown their light, they, they didn't like it. Their egos couldn't handle it, and that's what you see more often than not. The people that don't come back. Well, back in the day, now we did abuse everybody back then. When you came in, it was like, okay, if you can stick around, if you could, if you're tough enough to stick around, we'll take you on the team. If you're not tough enough, please be gone. We don't have time to waste for you. Uh, cause it wasn't a business. It was a club. So we ran into that situation quite a bit. And you highlight a really important distinction, right? There is a difference between running a business and running a fight club where I am of two minds about this. And I would love to get your take on this. When you have an environment like you describe, like super hard training with really tough people every night, you're going to produce a ton of incredibly tough people as Team Rock has, but then you're also going to weed out a ton of people along the way. And so I'm wondering now, like what you think of, because I look back even, you know, I'm, I'm not certainly not as old school as you are, but I look back to the time when I started training and I'm like, yeah, I don't know if, if I do that today in terms of like the way that things started. And I'm wondering... How how do you think about that? Do you think, yeah, we did everything right the first time? Do you think there are things you'd go back and change? Or is it a situation where you're grateful for how you came up training, but those aren't but there are certain practices you wouldn't repeat now? I guess it depends on what people's goals are uh coming into the sport. Personally, just what you said there at the end, I, I'm thrilled to death where I came from. Uh, I'm thrilled to death of the of the trial by fire and what, what I went through. Um, and, you know, because our goals were different. We weren't doing sport. We were, we were doing this as a martial art and we were doing it as a fighting martial art. You know, that's how I got into MMA. Well, how can you challenge yourself? I and mean, I can't run out on the street. I'm not going to pick up and, you know, pick fights and bars. Right. So you climb into the cage against another guy who's trained and, and you go duke it out. Right. And I guess that's the 
best form of mutual combat that we that we can go with today. And so uh, we did that. And so the group of people that were training were training to fight like that. And these guys were super tough. They were all athletes, you know, growing up. I mean, they were strong. I mean, so strong. I mean, these some of these guys have powerlifting records. You know, they were beast and they could punch and they could hit hard and and they almost like they had a lineage of fighting in their families you know and so that was great for me at the time as you mature and you grow up uh in the martial arts not not as a person because i'm still about 12 year old but as, as you mature in the martial arts you realize that 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 weeds out the opportunity for so many people to get into training and so now, you know, I create a culture that allows anybody to come in and train. I have a system that I bring people on. It's, you know, it's almost like an onboarding system. And I'm very strict about what the process is and what they must know to continue. And that focuses around the very fundamentals of what jujitsu is. And it's, it's, it's um, non-impactual. People don't have to roll. They just basically learn the moves and their bodies adapt to learning the moves. They understand the dangers that can happen because you're not going home with ice on your elbow every night or your knee or your hip or whatever. Um, And so bringing people up slowly now, it gives a much broader exposure to people and allows more and more people who are the people that actually need it. You know, the people that need a martial art aren't these super freak athletes. Those guys would beat the brakes off half the people fighting today uh, because they're just that talented of guys. But, you know, it's the little small person that needs the martial arts, who's not an athlete and that needs the confidence and life changing qualities, what jujitsu offers. And that's what I try to promote today um, because I can't, you know, athletes, great. They're going to be good no matter who coaches them. It's that person that I'm trying to touch. So you teach at Forge Fitness in Cary, North Carolina, along with your brother, Drew, who's a multiple times world champion at many belt levels, as you mentioned, recently won double gold in his weight and absolute at the brown belt level. So at Forge Fitness in Cary, I'm interested in hearing you talk about gym culture. What do you think the core elements of a positive and healthy gym culture is, both that keeps people coming back and makes a productive learning environment? So what I think we've hit on more than anything else is we almost have like an ambassador type relationship with each of the students. So as a student goes through the curriculum and they become an upper belt, I don't allow two upper belts to work together during a fundamentals class. So if you're an upper belt and you've passed my curriculum, then you know it because the passing standard is extremely high. Uh, And so you know my material and you know the way I want it taught. So I would have you work with a new person. So if you're a purple belt like yourself and you come to my class, you're not going to get to work with another purple belt. You're not going to get to work with a blue belt. You're not going to get to work with a three stripe. You're going to work with a brand new white belt who walked through the door that day. And and so, you know, I make sure that as people come in, that they have a friend in class, that they meet that person and they kind of tuck them under their wing. And that's going to be your mentor as you come along. And so you create an environment where everybody has a vested interest and it doesn't become a clique. And we don't allow them to roll so they don't develop bad habits and they don't get intimidated by what's happening around them. Uh, and they don't feel like, oh, I'm losing. I suck at this. Right. Because everybody sucks at first. Right. Nobody comes in and is world champion day one. Uh, so creating that environment where and even we do it in the advanced class that carries over to the advanced class. Can't be. Well, I tapped Jeff out 17 times with a guillotine yesterday. He sucks. I can guillotine him anytime I want. Well, that's a bad environment. That's a bad culture. If I'm keeping score 
against my friends and the other people and we're talking smack back and forth about I beat this guy or I did this or I accomplished this or, you know, then it becomes more about winning and losing and not learning. And what happens with people that do that, and you can see that I look around the triangle and I see lots and lots of gyms where this occurs, is they wind up stagnating their own game because they're always going to in class what's winning for them what they can beat their friends with so they can brag to everybody how they're the school champ, right? And then they walk into a major tournament and they get a round or two into the tournament. And all of a sudden, somebody has an answer for that game. And then you realize that, well, the people in class are tapping because the way you're treating them, not because of the technique, right? And so what you want people to do is develop develop their new techniques with no reprisal for failing because it's learning. So you didn't fail you learned something today and that, that you want to have a relationship where when you can't make it work, that the person is telling you what they did to counter it and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so with that mindset, that creates an entirely different environment for people to train in. And I think that's why we our classes are slammed to the gills. They're completely packed. Uh, it's awesome that the diversity of the crowd that we have is tremendous. And uh, and to go along with that, the success that these people have who you wouldn't really think of you met them personally well kind of like you (laughs) right (laughs) for those of you in radio land who don't know what jeff looks like he's this really nerdy little guy and he's really tough but he's completely nerdy so he would be the guy you would pick on in the bar and you'd want to beat him up because he would tell you who's a vegan the first 10 seconds that you met him don't make that mistake that's not smart but but that's what it is that's a culture where people like you can can feel part of the team and 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 be comprised you know and be welcomed And that's the environment. I want everybody to feel welcome. Whether you're a superstar athlete, there's a place for you. Whether you zero desire to compete and you care nothing about it, that this is an environment for you. If you're just coming in for the self-defense aspect or just just the fun of rolling and getting to meet different people or pushing your limit, you don't know why somebody came to class. They may just to challenge themselves. Like, why go jump out of an airplane? It's perfectly good. Well, because my friend's wife did it. And I don't want to like a sissy. So I jumped out of the airplane too, right? Well, that might be their personal goal. It's just to do something they would be completely uncomfortable doing. And so that's a win for them. A lot about that resonates with me. And two things about that. First of all, I, I jumped out of an airplane following my 65-year-old mother, who's way tougher and braver than I ever was. And I was like, I can't not do this with my mom doing it. But also, when you when you describe the folks that really need jujitsu, and I do count myself among that number as a smaller guy, as an older guy, you know, I think about Gita Bhatt, who is a professional person, a dentist who wanted to challenge herself, learn something new, and today is a blue belt world champion, who is you know a bronze medal in the absolute. And to look at Gita, you know, you would you would think, hey, this is this nice person that fixes my teeth, and you know, but you know, this is the power of jujitsu, and this is the power of a positive gym culture that helps people learn that martial art. I want to talk about a different martial art for a second or a, a blend of martial arts, which is I think we're spoiled these days, like people like myself, because we have all these jiu-jitsu tournaments most every weekend. We have these super fight cards and we have MMA here in the triangle. And what a lot of people don't realize is when you started, MMA wasn't legal in the triangle. Like you, you couldn't fight. And you, I, I've heard, were instrumental in, in changing that. And I'm, I'd like you to maybe talk us through like what the fight environment was like when you started training and how MMA came to be legal in North Carolina. The background on MMA becoming illegal was something that happened because of the cable companies and because of boxing. And they saw that MMA was becoming popular. The boxing guys didn't do it. The boxing guys had lots and lots of money. The MMA guys didn't have money. So they basically pulled it from cable. So when they pulled it from cable, some of the various boxing commissions around the country uh, basically banned the sport. 
And the law here in North Carolina was so poorly written, as most laws in North Carolina are, uh, so poorly written that it actually banned judo and wrestling based on the rules. So they tried to uh, stop us from, we had a, a grappling tournament one time, uh, the Pro-Ams uh, that myself and Billy Dowie and Frank Mullis put on uh, in at the Dorton Arena in Raleigh, which was an amazing tournament. with It was a who's who uh, of everybody. Uh, they tried to stop that. And uh, so we threatened to, to sue them if they allowed the USA Judo to happen in Charlotte, because basically the same rules apply. And they didn't want to not have USA Judo, right? Because that's a huge organization. We're a little tiny thing. Uh, so they allowed us to have it. And at that time, I went and tried to get the law changed. Myself and Frank Mullis were working on it to get MMA legalized because the rules, the banning, it made no sense, as we know today. Well, <clears throat> fast forward 10 years, um, you know, you go meet with all the uh, representatives in your state. And if you don't grease the right pockets and you don't hire the right lobbyists, you can't get anything done. Fast forward, uh, I, I got with uh, some other people. We put some money together, myself and Brent Pierce and one other person put some money together. And we went and hired ourselves a lobbyist, a very, very good, well-connected lobbyist. It's amazing how these doors open and everybody will sit down and talk with you. And yet they still know nothing more today than they knew 10 years ago. But you have the right person to sit down in front of. And we got the laws changed. Um, and and so that was a huge win for this state uh, because, you know, at the time we were having to drive to, to uh Kentucky to fight, to Virginia to fight, uh, everywhere else but in our backyard. We go down to Florida to fight. So it was really tough for local guys to really succeed in fighting because they weren't selling tickets at those events, right? Because if I'm fighting in Kentucky, I'm not going to take 100 people down there. But if I'm a local Kentucky fighter, I might. So we would become... We, you know, if you look at it like a wrestling standpoint of view, uh, the heels, right? We were brought into town to get our butts kicked. And the little podunk town from North Carolina, little Hillsborough guys, sure, we'll have you come to, you know, Louisville, Kentucky or Lexington, Kentucky and compete. And our local champ will beat you up. And then we'll beat the local champ. And then it makes for a fun night of partying. That's for sure. So, um, but that's how we kind of went about getting the law changed. And it was really an interesting concept once you realize what it takes to pass a law, what the process is. Uh, processes are it kind of discourages you when you look at what's happening today uh and we know it's just such a joke so did you ever have any of those nights when you were traveling to like kentucky or whatever when uh you had a tough time getting out of town like were the, were the locals ever super upset that you had had, had beaten the local hero so the best <laughs> so the best incident of that was in jacksonville florida uh we'd gone down there um and Spencer was fighting uh, the local guy, and and he had a great career. It was doing awesome. So he was a, a big name fighter. This other guy from I think he was from Peabody's Academy, tough school out of out of Jacksonville. Um, he was fighting that guy. We're fighting in a bar, uh, so it has like a cage set up in like this pit area right next to the stage, right because the the cage sits so high. And uh, and he goes in there and everybody's expecting him to lose. And, and so he shellacks this guy. I mean, he just beat the brakes off this guy. So everybody in the bar was there to see that guy fight. So we took it upon ourselves to exit quickly. And there was a team of guys. I don't remember where they were from. They were hilarious. They were a part of a lion's den group somewhere. And uh, they were staying at the same hotel. They did the same thing. They won when they weren't supposed to. They beat like the next up and coming champ. So we all just rushed back to the hotel, hung out there and talked jujitsu and, and, and finished our little party in the hotel. We didn't go out to any of the other bars around the area. Everybody told us we probably shouldn't go. Uh, and so we just skedaddled on out of town.
So what are some of your fondest memories of MMA in North Carolina, either fighters that you've trained or maybe tremendous fights that you've been a part of or seen? Like, do you have, do you have any, you know, what, what, what are the first things that, that pop to mind when you think about, about MMA in North Carolina over the past 10, 20 years? Just really how far it's come. I mean, a lot of the fights that happen, I usually have a role in the fight itself, either promotion or with training guys. So I actually don't get to see a lot of the fights unless I watch them back on video or something like that later. I think, you know, the trips to Danville, Virginia, when Brent would put on fights up there and the EVTs and the kick fest and things like that. Those were a lot of my memories, watching guys like Jake come up through the ranks Um you know, you always have these characters that, that go out there that want to fight that really have no business fighting. But, hey, they have a right. They have a right to get in there, you know, and give it a go. Now, we've we changed some of that today, but they still have a right to get punched in the face. I'm not going to begrudge any. If you want to get punched in the face and you think you're a tough guy, go sign up. I'll give you that. At least you showed up. Right. Not like some of the people in this state that I've known have gone to fights, weighed in and then split. And they're claiming to be these great fighters. Right. We have too many of that going on in North Carolina. Um, and so just the way the, the, the sport has come, you know, a lot of the guys that I've played a role with Brandon Garner, um, you know, Rodney Wallace out of Charlotte, Jordan Rinaldi out of Charlotte, uh, of course, Jake Whitfield, uh, you know, uh, Pat Wiggs was a good fighter, uh, back in the day, if we could ever get Pat to listen, he was phenomenal. Um, but you know, just lots of these guys and seeing them change their lives through fighting and what, a, what a part of their lives it became. Uh, you know, it's been a lot of fun to just be involved with all these people. One of the things that uh, I think makes you a really effective instructor is that all your, although you're an old school guy and your jiu-jitsu is rooted in self-defense, is rooted in the fighting mentality, is very much hoist Gracie jiu-jitsu, you've definitely kept up with modern sport jiu-jitsu as well. And so I, I want to ask a couple of questions about that. First of all, like one of the things uh, that was fun for me to watch was after you had spent I don't even know how many hours studying the Mendez brothers to get the chance to watch you do two privates with Rafael Mendez and sort of break down his game with him in a way that I think surprised him with how familiar you were with his game. Why is it important to you to keep abreast of the modern sport jiu-jitsu developments given that your roots are very much in this self-defense-oriented, fighting-oriented jiu-jitsu? It's because it's fun. <laughs> like I do jiu-jitsu because it's fun. So it's not always fighting. Yes, your foundation should be about fighting. Yes, your foundation should be rooted in self-defense. Yes, you should practice your self-defense every day because you know what? That is the martial arts part of it. You need to learn to clinch. You need to learn to get a fight to the ground. You need to learn how not to get hit. You need to try to play the Damian Maya game. Super important to play that game. Very important. If you're only going to do the sport for self-defense and, and that's your goal, again, you got to know your goals. If that's your goal, absolutely. Let's just do that. Come to my fundamentals class. That's exactly what you're going to learn. But you want to go on and you want to compete. If you're going to compete today, you need to keep abreast of what's going on in the environment today. There aren't any guys better than Lucas Lepree and Hoffa and Guy Mendez, right? Rafael Lovato Jr. Last year, my training was amazing. I got to train with Rafael Lovato Jr., arguably one of the best black belts in the world at the heavyweight division. I got to train with Lucas Lepree many, many times. Phenomenal instructor, person, and absolute freak athlete, right? Six-time world champion now out of Charlotte. And then you've got, you know, uh, Hoffa Mendez, six-time world champion. And unbelievable. And they're so far ahead. And the unique thing that I saw out of all these individuals is they each do the exact same thing, and then they have a different direction at the end. And that's what their goal is. 
I love that. I love breaking it down and doing it makes jujitsu fun again because I'm rediscovering new techniques, new positions. I'm getting in positions that I have to figure out. Uh, and I do it because I love it. It's just fun. And I, I do a sport because it's fun. If you like basketball, you play basketball. I don't go out there on the basketball court and try to smash people in the face with the ball. That's fun too, but that's called dodgeball. And so, you know, you've got to have uh, an environment where people are enjoying themselves. It's a social group and we're having fun. So I love the new stuff uh, because it's fun and because it gives me something to challenge me because I'm not necessarily good at it. If you want to play smash jiu-jitsu, I'm pretty good at that. If you want to spin upside down on your head, I'm not so good at that, but it's fun right? It's fun to learn. Even in my age, it's a, I've had a blast. I've, in the last two years, I've put a ton of time in with, with Hoffa's techniques, studying from Hoffa, talking to Hoffa, training, watching his matches. And uh, it, man, it reinvigorated me tremendously. I love it. Who would you say your favorite jujitsu practitioners are to watch? Well, I mean, you, you get, like I said, I just named three of the greats. I mean, you watch Zanji. I mean, I watch Lucas all day long, whether he wins or loses unbelievable jiu-jitsu unbelievable coach like i said i consider him a friend uh hoffa i always watch i watch every match that he has over and over and over again uh you watch zanji i don't watch the meow brothers too much yet um they're young they're super flexible they're incredibly talented but they play a game to me my perception is a it's a step behind where the mendez brothers are i think what they're doing is they're studying the mendez brothers after the mendez brothers come out with their information so they're a step behind so i don't focus on them as much um but you know zanji Ibero, solo Ibero, uh rafael lovato jr lucas uh leandro Lowe, love to watch those guys right um i try to watch people with a body styles a body type similar to me and uh and then that gives me something that i can mimic but, you know, I love to watch Flavio Almeida compete. He competed in Master Seniors Worlds. Incredible athlete, you know. So, you know, I just love jiu-jitsu. I don't care. I just don't like to watch bad jiu-jitsu. Well, let's talk about we, – we just talked about some of the guys nationally and across the world that you like to watch. Let's talk about North Carolina jiu-jitsu specifically. Who do you think the best jiu-jitsu practitioners that North Carolina specifically has produced are? And who do you think the most underrated people currently in North Carolina jiu-jitsu are? Like folks that, you know, either people don't realize how good they are, maybe they haven't heard of them, and, uh, or, or just people that you think deserve more recognition. Hmm. Tough question because there's new guys coming up every day, right? I see the guys that I train with on a regular basis, so that's an easy default. I think that, um, you know, one of the guys that I think doesn't get near enough credit for what he's capable of doing on the mats and should do on the mats, of course, my good friend Roy Marsh that you've had on the program uh, you know, I was his coach for many, many, many years. Uh, now we're, now we're, you know, compatriots more or less, you know, he coaches me, I coach him. Uh, he's, he's phenomenal. He's a, a great brain at jujitsu at breaking down the game at understanding it, new, old, everything. Um, so he's probably way underrated. You know, when he was, when he was actively competing, he was destroying people. You know, I think he won worlds as a, purple belt or a brown belt purple belt belt. and uh so but he made it look easy it looked ridiculously easy it was like he was a giant amongst little kids uh so his game is good jake's game's always good it's very very uh uh mma oriented um but he's much more flexible than people give him credit for because he's because he's chubby and eats sheet cake all the time so you know, if he get his diet right, if he follows some Gracie diet, he'd be a little bit better off. But, you know, it's sheet cake or, you know, uh, papaya. He's going sheet cake. 
and so, you know, you got those guys, of course, because they're my friends. So, of course, I'm going to think they're really good. You know, you got guys like Adam Jetton out of Wilmington. Adam's an up-and-coming guy. Uh, you got Neil Zumbro down there who's very good as well. Um you know, I knew Adam from Team Rock Charlotte, uh, a great competitor. Uh, of course, Tony Casares, you've had him on the show. Phenomenal guy, uh, great instructor, good good friend. Uh, just amazed at his game. He really helped me elevate my game. You know, because he's very rooted in the modern jiu-jitsu style. Um, he just, you know, he's in these brackets and these divisions with incredibly tough guys. So you don't get to see him. Uh, I think Alan Bevier doesn't compete enough uh, out of the Raleigh school. Uh, he's pretty talented. Um, he competes some in the U.S. grappling. I like to see him step his game up and get some recognition. Uh, I think he's ready to take that next step with his jiu-jitsu game. Um, man, there, you know, there are lots of good guys. You know, the Murdoch brothers, what can you say about those guys, right? I mean, they're just phenomenal. You know, that's a that's a very interesting story from my perspective. You know, not to not to step on people's toes, but – you know, when, when, when CJ particularly is a, um, a testament to, to the type of person that he is, right? I mean, the guy got promoted what I would consider a little bit early for his black belt. Um, and I think he recognized that at the time. But, you know, sometimes you get a belt, you get the belt, and you disappear into oblivion never to compete again. I'm retired. We get that, oh, I'm retired, right? Or you step your game up. And man, if a kid has ever stepped their game up, that guy did it, man. He is exploding. His abilities are exploding. You know, he's in an environment now that's geared towards training where he can just put his efforts into getting better. You see it with him and his brother, Josh. Josh just, I mean, just put the hurting on bagels the other week. Uh, you know, it's like, wow, where did that guy come from? Looks like somebody looked past him, you know, and uh he he just represents, man. Those those guys are. I think there's something to watch in the future. I think if you keep your eyes out on them, if they keep going at the uh, at the speed and pace they're going right now, people are going to be shocked what they accomplish. I certainly agree with all those names, and I'm glad that you, that uh, some of those folks are getting recognition. We'd love to have the Murdoch brothers in together on the show as a podcast. We had CJ call in when he was in Brazil, but having both Murdoch brothers would be great. The other thing about Josh is Josh came back from a broken back and has, and his game has only exploded since then. It is kind of like, uh, it sort of highlights how there are folks, there are folks that there are many folks that would have taken that as an easy, graceful out of ever competing again or challenging themselves again. And Josh took the opposite path. And he, he probably should have not competed again. I don't know. I'm not his doctor. I don't know what his back looks like. I don't know what's going on in his back. I know he does play a, a loose modern game, which can be detrimental to people's backs. Um, but in, in the displays that I've seen him do, I don't think he's put himself in any compromised positions. But it's not just a testament to the, the toughness of coming back, because this is a sport that gets in your blood and you become addicted to it and you'll do it, you know, even at the cost of your health. It's a testament to how much work does it take to go from where you were to being trashed and not being able to do anything for an extended period of time and then to come back and and just make progress after progress after progress and just explode like he's done. It's impressive, man. Like I said, those two guys really, they, they got the right heart. They got the right attitude. Uh, they're good people. It's just amazing. Like, I'm real impressed with those guys. What do you think the next big thing North Carolina Jiu-Jitsu needs to do in order to continue to improve uh, in, in terms of, like, either either locally or getting recognition nationally? What, what do you think the next step is for the scene out here? Well, I, 
you know, when you get a guy like Lucas who comes to town, people can look at it one of two ways. You know, they can be intimidated by, you know, oh, my God, Lucas Aprees in town. He's going to get all the business. He's going to do everything, you know, uh, or they could take it as an opportunity and a resource and a person to go learn from and develop and grow and pick his brain. Um, you know, I think the sport's on the right path. You know, we do have many, many, many world champions uh, that have that have done things. You know, Kim Rice has done amazing things. Uh, my brother, of course, I mean, he's my brother, but he does have 10 world championships. Right. He got nine and 10 this last time. Uh, so he's done it from blue belt all the way through to brown belt. You know, yes, we're older and compete in the Masters senior division. But uh, there are a lot of people that don't make it out of the rounds uh, with these guys. And he's done it year after year after year after year. Right. So, um that kind of recognition is going to happen. It's really, you know, with the IBJJF coming to Charlotte uh, in October, I think that's going to be a huge step in the right direction to get us on the map nationally where people are going to recognize it as an event venue. Um, I think that's huge as well. Uh, the sport's just growing. It's just, it. you just got to be careful when you do stuff like this so we don't go the McDojo route. You see a lot of schools that their instructor got promoted super duper fast and they promote super duper fast. And all of a sudden you've got these like, you know, three and four and five year black belts. Like, come on guys. Like there's gotta be a way to earn this stuff and there's gotta be a standard. But, uh, you know, I can't, I can't vote for everybody else. Everybody says, Oh, you sandbag your guys. No, I don't sand my, my guys. You just don't have the right standard. So it's not my problem. Taking it down to the individual level. I'm curious as a teacher, when you look at people that are at the blue belt level, maybe, or people that have, have learned the fundamentals fairly well, what do you think the most common mistakes they make in training are that prevent them from getting to that next level and taking the next step in their individual evolution? Well, having a spouse, having a girlfriend, having a boyfriend or having a child or a dog usually is the detriment. All of those things will ruin your jiu-jitsu career. And uh, so that's the biggest problems I see. I think everybody should get divorced and be single and go do this thing. If you don't have somebody to support you 100%, kick them out, get another one, get another dog, change dogs, whatever it does that takes away from your training time. No, <laughs> it's true. Get another kid, you can make another one. The, um, now, the mistakes that they make, I think they're not humble enough. I think the biggest thing that holds anybody back is they're not willing to quote unquote lose or what I call learning class and when their ego gets in the way and they don't want and they feel like oh, I lost I, I suck at this I'm never going to be anywhere that's exactly what happened you you did lose and and now you do suck and you don't suck because you lost you suck because of your attitude and that's the biggest mistake that I see the people that realize uh, or feel like they need to be top of the world, right? Maybe they were a phenomenal athlete in another sport and they come to jiu-jitsu and it's super duper humbling because nerd man beats you up and, you know, you're tapping out to this guy, you know, driving some, you know, hybrid out there, you know, eating vegetables and kale and mushrooms all the time. You know, it hurts your feelings. And so when you have to roll with those guys, you have to put your ego in check and you have to realize it's the techniques that work. And then maybe you're not focusing enough on drilling the techniques. You're too focused on competing and butting heads with other people. You mentioned that it's the techniques that beat people. It's not the athletes. And that echoes something somebody that you mentioned said recently, Demian Maya, who's somebody that you cited as, you know, terrific fundamental jiu-jitsu applicable in all situations. I'm wondering who you think the best representatives of jiu-jitsu of all time are. Like what names come to mind in terms of th this person is one of the best representatives jiu-jitsu has had. 
Well, that's true. I mean, you could go back and let like every every generation has people that that could you could almost lay claim to that for that generation, right? I mean, there was a there was an era where Hodger Gracie was absolutely unequivocally the man, right? If you can pass everybody's guard and you can get mount and you can cross choke everybody, that's the pinnacle of the sport. When you look at the sport, that's the pinnacle. That's I mean, I just abused you. I, that's complete ownership, right? You get an arm, an accident could have happened. I got your arm. I choked you with a basic choke from the mount, to which I exuded complete control, right? And jiu-jitsu is an art of control. And so, uh, I mean, you, you can never say that guy's not one of the greatest. I mean, you look at Bochecha. Yes, he's massive. Yes, he's huge, but his technique is solid. Uh, and he's done a, an unbelievable job. Solo and Zanji, again, you know, I can go back to those guys again and again because they still put it on the line. They still test their technique, not only at the master's level, but they also do it at the adult divisions. Uh, and their stuff is, is standing true. So their jujitsu has to hold up because it's being tested no matter what you throw at those guys. Uh, of course, you got to go with Hickson, you know, in jujitsu world. Um, John Jock Machado, amazing. You know, back in the day, Hegan was the man. Um, Hegan's a big guy now. So the, uh, you know, but I'm sure he's a great instructor. Um, as far as the best representatives, it's, you can't pick one, I don't think. I mean, in fighting right now in MMA, it's Damian Maia hands down, right? Because he, you know, you see this in guys from jiu-jitsu who go into fighting and they learn a new tool. They grab a new tool. Oh, I can punch and kick now. Look at me. I'm a great puncher and kicker. Well, you've been doing that for two years. You need to stop, right? You need to go back to what made you famous. Go back to where you're better than the rest of the world at. And that's what happened to Damian Maia. He came out, unbelievable jiu-jitsu, got afraid to take people to the ground because he didn't know if he could get the takedown, started punching with people, getting beat up, pulled back, decided to go with the with the straight jiu-jitsu approach and is just destroying everybody. And so he's better than everybody in the ground, so take the fight where it should. And BJ Penn should have done this many, many years ago, and he would have been one of the greats. Are there any questions that I haven't asked that you wish I would have asked about or anything that you just want the listeners to know about Jason Culbreth? Not really. Um, <laughs> I mean – the, you know, I just love the sport. You know, I, I, I love what we do. I want people to go out and try it out. You know, those that don't train should go train. Um, if you don't think that you're, you know, well, I'm, I'm frail. That's, you're the person that should be training. If you're afraid when you're walking down the street or you're uncomfortable walking down the street, you probably should go train, right? Everybody talks about, you know, concealed carry. I hear this all the time. You know, I love guns. Guns are great. Love guns. But people talk about, you know, oh, we got to conceal carry. But everybody asks, well, can you show me your gun? And they all have it in the car. Nobody has it on them. Like, well, if you don't have your gun on you, then how are you going to shoot me? Well, you can't shoot me because your gun's in the car. So now you need to learn some jiu-jitsu. So, you know, I can carry that with me everywhere I go, and I never leave it in the car. And that's the key. And I think that, uh, you know, people that, that don't put um, – incorporate some striking in their training – and incorporate the active self-defense. So it's not just a one move, but it might flow into move two or three. Uh, you know, I think they should step their game up and, and go back to that because, you know, you don't want to be the embarrassment. I remember the eight-year-old black belt kid doing taekwondo. You just put your hand on his head and hold him off, and he's doing spin kicks, but he can't get to you, right? That's, that's for the most part in jiu-jitsu, when somebody wears a belt, the perception is exactly what you think it is. And I think that's what makes jiu-jitsu a unique martial art. So last question. So let's say one day you retire from active competition. Uh, you're not uh, training or, t or you're not teaching anymore. Maybe you're still training. How would you want North Carolina Jiu-Jitsu to remember Jason Culbreth in just a few sentences? 
I don't put a lot of thought into that, but probably just to be remembered of the guy who gave gave back as much as he could to the sport and to the people that participated in the sport. I think that's what I would most want to be recognized for is how much I've done for other people in the sport. So many people out there uh, have got their start through me, through either contact through me or me dragging their butt onto the mat and forcing them to train when they didn't want to train. Um, you know, the the endless miles that I've driven to corner people in fights. You know, I went to a fight in in Louisiana one time and uh, wound up wrapping 22 sets of hands there because the people there didn't know how to wrap hands. Uh, Should have charged. I'd, I'd have paid for my trip. But So that's the type of guy that I think that I'd like to be recognized as is what I've done for the sport and for the people in the sport. I think a lot of people have a tendency, and, and we've heard it on the show a lot. I get, get big kicks when I listen to a lot of the interviews that you know they forget where they came from and they forget their humble upbringings. They forget what they were doing before I gave them an opportunity in the sport either through a job or through uh, leadership. And so that's all I can say. Jason Culberth is a black belt in jiu-jitsu and now a black belt world champion. He teaches and trains at Forge Fitness of Kerry with his brother Drew, also a multiple times world champion now at the brown belt level. Jason, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it, buddy.